Hi, everyone. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can support the show by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash words for granted. Thanks to Paul, Nathaniel, and Leslie for their recent contributions. I post about one bonus episode per month on Patreon these days, so if you want more of the podcast, that's how you can get it. If Patreon isn't your thing, but you still want to support the show, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Okay, let's get on to today's episode. To start, I'd like to read the opening paragraph of Darren McMahon's 2013 book, Divine Fury, A History of Genius. Quote, Genius. Say the word out loud. Even today, more than 2,000 years after its first recorded use by the Roman author Plautus, it continues to resonate with power and allure, the power to create, the power to divine the secrets of the universe, the power to destroy. With its hints of madness and eccentricity, sexual prowess and protean possibility, genius remains a mysterious force, bestowing on those who would assume its superhuman abilities and godlike powers. Genius, conferring privileged access to the hidden workings of the world. Genius, binding us still to the last vestiges of the divine. End quote. Einstein, Da Vinci, Mozart, Newton... These are the kinds of people who embody our modern sense of genius. Genius can refer to an extraordinary individual, their extraordinary talent, or their extraordinary works. Certainly, geniuses have always existed, yet the concept of the genius, as we know it, is relatively new. The word itself is ancient, as that quote suggests. It's derived from the Latin Genius, spelled just as we spell genius today. But in its birthplace of ancient Rome, a genius was not a person. It was not a work of art. It was not an achievement. A genius was originally a mythological spirit. So before we dive into the etymology of genius, we need to orient ourselves to what the word meant in the ancient world. In its earliest iteration, the genius was a spirit that ensured a house father's prosperity through the propagation of children. This genius wasn't the father himself, nor was it something metaphysical within the father, like a soul. The genius was an ancestral deity, a life force. It was external to any one individual, and it passed patrilineally from father to son in perpetuity. Thus, the birth of every man was overseen by a genius. If a man took an oath in the name of his family's genius, you'd know that he meant business. In art, these genius spirits were often represented as serpents or winged young men. There was no universal god of genius because different families had different geniuses. In this original sense, genius had nothing to do with the brilliant or the extraordinary, in fact, quite the contrary. Since every family worshipped its own genius, genius was ordinary. As I said, geniuses were passed down from father to son. There was a similar deity known as the Juno, or the Uno in Latin, 
which was passed down from mother to daughter. At a high level, what can be said of the earliest conception of genius can also be said of the Juno. During wedding ceremonies, a lectus genialis, or wedding bed, was offered to the genius and Juno of the bride and groom. A lectus genialis was a special bed for procreation. And indeed, genialis and genius, or genius, share the same root word. This original notion of genius as a personal divine force overseeing the continuity of a family's bloodline, aka reproduction, is right there in the word's etymology. Genius ultimately derives from the Latin verb gignere, meaning to give birth. Genius literally means begetter. The related Latin word gens, meaning clan, tribe, or family, is a word-forming element in a ton of very common English words. Generation, genesis, gender, gene, genetic, progenitor, genital, genocide, engender, ingenuity, generate, generous, engine, and genius, among others, are all cognates that ultimately go back to this verb gignere, to beget or give birth. Actually, the word cognate itself is cognate with this group of words. It's made up of the Latin prefix co, meaning with, and gnatus, which is the past participle of the verb nascor, another Latin word meaning to give birth. Both gignere and nascor ultimately derive from the shared Proto-Indo-European root word gen, which meant, you guessed it, to give birth. By the first century BCE, the conception of the genius deity evolved, likely due to Greek influences on the Romans. In Greece, there was a type of deity known as the daimon. The concept of the daimon in the Greek world also experienced a number of developments, but according to Plato, whose influence proved to be the most lasting, the daimon was a sort of attendant spirit or tutelary deity that existed with every person from the time of their birth to the time of their death. It sometimes acted as a guiding voice, perhaps akin to what we might call the voice of conscience, mediating between the divine and mortal realms. The word daimon is the root of the word demon, which of course has a very different meaning, and I actually explored that development in one of my favorite episodes of this podcast, way back in episode 43. Wow, that was a long time ago. Anyway, as Romans absorbed these Greek influences, the Greek notion of the daimon influenced the Roman notion of the genius. The genius evolved into this type of guardian angel, a tutelary deity, an attendant spirit. And today, if you were to Google what was a genius in ancient Rome, this is the most common definition you would find. As an extension of this more individualistic sense of genius, the word came to be identified with a person's character, their temperament or desires. It became associated with an individual's higher self or ultimate self, rather than the continuity of their ancestral bloodline. Since a man's genius not only oversaw his birth, but also accompanied him until the day he died, the most important day to venerate a genius was on a man's birthday. Indeed, the festum geniale, which was made up of an annual ritual of cake, fire, and wine offerings made to one's genius, is the precursor to the modern birthday party. The tradition of making a wish before a flickering flame has a soundly pagan lineage. 
Genius was also beginning to be used in reference to inspiration or talent. This might seem like the point at which we can say, aha, that's where the modern sense of genius comes from, but that's not exactly accurate. The concept was still totally entangled in divinity. In the ancient world, inspiration was, by its nature, a divine phenomenon, a testament to the power of one's attendant spirit rather than their personal ingenuity, per se. This belief as inspiration as divine is reflected in the etymology of inspire itself. Inspire comes from the Latin words in, meaning into, and spirare, meaning to breathe. Inspiration was literally believed to be a divine breath or divine wind that enters or possesses a mortal from the god realm. Out of this new individualistic sense of genius also evolved the genius loci, or genius loci, or genius of a place. Volcanoes, temples, theaters, streets, baths, and even political districts all were believed to possess a genius, or protective spirit, usually depicted as a snake. Collectively, the Roman people also had a genius, the Genius Publicus, or Genius Populi Romani. A statue of this people's genius stood in the Roman Forum, depicted as a crowned man with a beard holding a cornucopia in one hand and a scepter in the other. Taking a cue from this tradition of the Genius Populi Romani, Caesar Augustus transformed his personal genius into an object of mandatory public worship. Official oaths were sworn in the name of the genius Augusti, and libations were poured in its honor at every meal. The genius Augusti, or genius of the living emperor, was revolutionary in that it laid the foundation for several centuries of Roman imperial cults. Although imperial cults technically worshipped the emperor's genius and not his person, the mortal and the divine were often conflated, in effect transforming the emperor himself into a deity. Of course, sometimes Roman emperors made bad decisions. Ever heard of Caligula? Nero? And sometimes, ordinary Roman men made bad decisions too. Was this because their geniuses turned against them? Not exactly. Writing in the first century BCE, Horace suggests that geniuses, like the very men they protect, also have their own strengths and weaknesses, their own likes and dislikes, etc., a genius could manifest in a number of different ways to the mortal it protects, and not all of these ways were necessarily good. Drawing on older Platonic ideas of the soul, Roman writers such as Varro and after him Servius even proposed that every man is born with two geniuses, a malus genius, meaning evil genius, and a bonus genius, meaning good genius. Though the meaning is different, this is indeed the origin of the phrase evil genius. The good genius-evil genius dichotomy is also the precursor to the modern trope of shoulder angels and shoulder devils representing restraint and temptations. But don't get the idea that this dichotomy was uniquely Roman. Like I said, the Greek Plato intimated these ideas centuries earlier, and the notion of good angels versus evil demons exists within Christianity as well, a notion that, ironically, may have been influenced by the Roman concept of geniuses. This is especially ironic since many early Christians who refused to worship Roman geniuses were executed as martyrs. The most famous of these martyrs who refused to make offerings to the genius Augusti is probably Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. 
In the 3rd century CE, the unofficial church father Origen wrote, quote, Christians certainly do not swear by the genius of the emperor. The genius of the emperor is a demon, and we ought rather to die than to swear by a wicked and faithless demon that commits sin with the man to whom it has been assigned. End quote. But, as I'm sure most of you know, Rome was ultimately Christianized, and by the 4th century CE, Roman paganism, along with its geniuses, became virtually extinct. Sort of. Some scholars have argued that the cultural institution of the genius was merely adopted by Christianity as the institution of saints. Some saints were believed to watch over individuals from birth to death, a la the personal genius, while others were believed to watch over a place, a la the genius loci. They bore messages from God to mortals and carried prayers from mortals to God. This subplot of saints as a continuation of geniuses through a Christian lens isn't entirely relevant to our story, so I'm going to skip over it, but it is super interesting, and if you want to learn more, there's a whole chapter in Darren McMahon's book Divine Fury that explores this. During the medieval period, the word genius and its entire cultural history lay mostly dormant. It would be revived during the Renaissance following Europe's rediscovery of its classical past, but before we can jump ahead into the next stage of the word's development, we actually have to turn our attention right back to ancient Rome and consider the evolution of a different but etymologically related word. Ingenium. Our modern sense of genius is really a conflation of these two Latin words, ingenium and genius, a conflation that was fostered during the Renaissance and fully realized by the Enlightenment. So, originally, ingenium referred to a person's inborn nature, or natural qualities. We can see this transparently in the word's etymology, in plus genium. Genium is merely the accusative, or direct object, form of the word genius itself, and thus ingenium literally meant the genius within. It's important to note that this word doesn't just redundantly call genius by another name. By adding that prefix in, ingenium establishes itself as a quality within a person rather than qualities ascribed to a person's attendant deity. Now, if you belong to a culture that believed temperament is determined by an attendant deity, it's not exactly clear to me how your inborn qualities, your ingenium, uh, would function independently within that framework, but the reality is that in the ancient world, basically everywhere, everything, even domains that we would consider secular today, were suffused with divinity. So we're not gonna we're not so we're not gonna unravel that here. Uh, just know that in spite of this, that prefix in grounds the metaphysicality of the genius spirit in mortality, in corporeality. Picking up on this notion, Renaissance thinkers would go as far as proposing biochemical theories of what made up a good ingenium. Anyway, our inborn qualities might be good or bad, but even in its earliest days, ingenium tended to connote positive qualities such as intelligence, talent, aptitude, creativity, and art, all of which are the groundwork for the quality we today call genius. If you're thinking that ingenium sounds a lot like the modern English word ingenuity, you're onto something. In its earliest English translations, ingenium was originally translated as wit, but shortly after it became ingenuity. 
ingenuity and ingenium are indeed cognates, but strictly speaking, ingenuity is technically not its direct descendant, so it would be false to present ingenium and ingenuity as the same word. Whereas the Roman sense of genius was tied explicitly to pagan worship, ingenium was not, and while the word genius faded into obscurity for much of the medieval Christian period, ingenium did not. In fact, the word engine, which first appeared in English during the 12th century, is a direct descendant of ingenium. Engine originally referred broadly to a skill, a strategy, or a clever invention before being restricted to a mechanical device. In order to make an engine, you needed ingenium. Okay, let's take a quick break and hear a word from today's sponsor. If you run a small business, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for the roles you need to fill. That's why LinkedIn Jobs made it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. Now, I don't run a small business, but I did check out how the LinkedIn Jobs site works, and it's just about as simple and as intuitive as can be. You can create a free job posting in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. The interface lets you focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience by using screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. Then, by using the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs, you can quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and ultimately hire. LinkedIn Jobs has been ranked number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors, and I can honestly see why. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com words. That's linkedin.com words to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, back to the show. By the time of the Renaissance, some philosophers were starting to theorize the substance of ingenium in a new light. Among the first of these philosophers was the Italian Neoplatonist Marsilio Ficino. Recall that the Roman sense of genius as a personal attendant deity was influenced by the Greek concept of the daimon. This came from Plato, yet elsewhere Plato also equates the daimon with the rational part of the soul. He's a little inconsistent on this. Ficino concurs with this latter Platonic idea, that rationality itself is a manifestation of a daimon, or, rendered in Latin, of genius. Plato, Ficino, and other like-minded contemporary philosophers, such as Vives and Huarte, still thought of the rational soul in terms of the divine, so we're not at a secular sense of genius yet. But this nonetheless represents a turning point in our story because the genius is no longer external to the person. It is now a divine substance within the person. In this new idea of genius, it becomes impossible to disentangle the genius from the ingenium. Genius has become ingenium, the genius within, literally. Regarding ingenium, Huarte writes, quote, a man of perfect ingenium knows everything and understands all things. End quote. What Huarte seems to be implying by the word ingenium is something close to what we call genius today, 
but the sense of genius as a mere inborn disposition, as opposed to an extraordinary inborn disposition, didn't fade away overnight. The earliest attestations of the word genius in English, such as those by Philip Sidney and John Milton, occur in this more subdued sense. The poet John Dryden provides us with an interesting definition of genius during the mid-17th century. His definition acknowledges the word's history while describing some of the present superstitions still surrounding it, in addition to, in my opinion, foreshadowing its future. Quote, A happy genius is the gift of nature. It depends on the influence of the stars, say the astrologers, on the organs of the body, say the naturalists. Tis the particular gift of heaven, say the divines, both Christians and heathens. How to improve it, many books can teach us. How to obtain it, none. End quote. Quick aside, the emergence of the word genie, as in genie in a bottle, is also connected to the history of the word genius, and it crops up in English at around this time period. Genie is an anglicization of the French word for genius, which was used to translate the Arabic word jinn in the French translation of Arabian Nights. The Arabic word jinn refers to demons, angels, or spirits within the Islamic tradition, and the similarity between the words jinn and the French genie is a mere coincidence. But a happy coincidence, because many educated readers of Arabian Nights would have recognized the genie, or genius, as a canonically familiar spirit, despite its changing definition in the present day. So, at last, we are about to arrive at the emergence of the sense of genius that we can fully claim as our own in the present. Although many 18th century scholars and philosophers were still religious, superstitions were fading. This was the era of the Enlightenment, of empiricism, of the birth of modern science, and the belief in things like spirits or angels or demons or divine notions of a platonic soul all became things of the past for Europe's most forward-thinking philosophers. At this point, humanity, at least in its Western European conception, experienced a break with the divine, conferring upon humanity for the first time genius that it could claim as its own. During this century, the word genius starts flooding the intellectual discourse. Shakespeare is hailed a genius. Homer is hailed a genius. Ben Franklin is hailed a genius. The zeitgeists of different time periods and intellectual movements might produce geniuses of different temperaments, such as a romantic genius versus an enlightenment genius, but the idea of genius and his extraordinary capacities remained constant. And I do say his because, yes, genius was largely restricted to a male characteristic even at this late point in history. In an instance of proto-feminism, poet Mary Scott advocated for the female potential for genius, but it's not until quite recently, I think, that her appeals have really been taken seriously. There's no scientific consensus on what makes a genius a genius. Is talent a prerequisite? What percentage of genius is nature, and what percentage is nurture? Is genius across various domains, like mathematics, music, or literature, created equal? Is IQ relevant? Having arrived at our modern sense of genius, in the late 19th century, some thinkers, most notably Francis Galton, who pioneered the IQ test, sought to quantify and map out genius. 
Galton was a social Darwinist, a racist, and a eugenicist who used the IQ test to justify his prejudiced ideas. Most scholars of genius today tend to agree that raw intelligence, which is what IQ supposedly measures, is not actually synonymous with or even necessarily conducive to genius. Genius, as it turns out, is not measurable. Millennia after the word was conceived as a divine notion, there's still something mystical about it, still something unknowable about inspiration, still something indescribable about being in the presence of someone, male or female, whose gifts seem otherworldly. All right, thank you so much for listening. I hope you love this one. I think it was one of my favorites to put together for you guys. Again, if you want to support my research, you can make a monthly contribution at patreon.com. That'll also give you access to short, mostly monthly bonus episodes. If you have any questions or suggestions for me, you can email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at wordsforgranted for etymology of the day posts and other linguistic musings. Okay, I'll talk to you next time here at Words for Granted. Words for Granted.